Okay, so I'm going to do something this morning that I've only done one other time in the seven and a half years of Connect Church's history. I ain't preaching the message that I wrote this week, all right? I woke up this morning at 5 a.m. and I thought to myself, that message is not good, okay? If I'm just going to be real with you, sometimes I write stinkers. I don't know if that was going to be a stinker or not, but it was too close to the line for comfort. It was true. It was definitely informative, but I don't really know how helpful that message would have been. I always want to not just inform you of what the scripture says, but inspire you to believe that God wants to do incredible things through your life. And if I'm honest, that message was kind of missing that portion of it. Okay. The other thing that happened was throughout this entire series, I've had a, a section, a passage of scripture on my heart and mind that I cannot stop thinking about. The problem is it's not from the parable of the talents and the whole premise of the get your series was that we were going to spend four weeks talking about the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. So I was thinking to myself, Lord, I shouldn't change the passage and talk about something else. That's false advertising. They're going to be like, Dan, you promised me four weeks on Matthew 25 and now you're only giving me three. What's up? I'm not coming back. I was really worried that this was going to bother you guys. And then uh, this morning the Lord was like, get over yourself, dude. Okay. They don't care what you're teaching on as long as it's what I want them to hear. And so I scrapped the three or four pages that I spent 10 or 12 hours writing. And uh, I, I came up with something else this morning that's more in line with what I believe God wants you to hear. Okay. So with that being said, you got to know this is uh, a little different than a normal message. We don't have all the screens that we would normally have because I didn't even have time to put those together. All the verses that we're going to read uh, from this particular passage are there. Um, but you know what? If this turns out to be a disaster and you know, it might because I just wrote this thing at 5 a.m. Um, if it turns out to be a disaster, it's my fault for not listening to God earlier. And if if it turns out to, to be a good message, then the Holy Spirit gets all the credit because I basically did no work for this, th- this thing. Okay, here we go. Luke chapter number 12. I want to read to you another parable that Jesus told. And the interesting thing is this parable is on the same theme as the parable of the talents that we've been talking about over the last several weeks. You're going to see so many parallels, so many overlaps between this parable, the parable of the rich farmer and the parable of the talents. You, I, I think you'll see why this has been on my mind. Luke chapter 12, we're going to read verses 13 to 21. Jesus is giving a teaching. There's a room full of people around. They're listening. He's winding down the teaching. And we read in verse 13, then someone called from the crowd, somebody way in the back lifted their hand and they're like, teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. Okay, this is an awkward interruption, okay? There's like family drama. Somebody from the back is yelling stuff. And look at what Jesus says here. Friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? Then he said, beware. Guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Then he told them a story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, so what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Then he said, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and I'll say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. If you've ever heard that phrase, it comes directly from this story that Jesus is telling here. But God said to him, you fool. You will die this very night. Then who will get everything that you worked for? And then Jesus kind of concludes. He explains and he says, yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not to be rich towards God. 
Uh, Father, would you help us? Would your spirit speak? And Lord, would you communicate what we need to hear from this passage? God, we have open ears, obedient hearts. And so we trust that Lord, you're going to meet with us here today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Now, what I find really interesting, okay, about this rich farmer is that particularly as you read through the first part of this story, we would look at this guy as an example to follow. We would look at this guy as a success. He has everything going for him. In the world's eyes, this is a dude that's got it made. And don't we all want to be like that? Don't we want to have the sort of success that this farmer is experiencing? Absolutely. I want you to notice a few of the qualities that we're told about this dude, okay? In verse number 16, we read that he's earning a lot. He's very successful. His business is fruitful. It is profitable he's got more money and more resources than he knows what to do with. Yes and amen. I'm trying to get there, Lord. Could you help me with that? If you've got a business, you're probably thinking the same thing, man. I want to have so much business. I want to have so much profits. I don't even know how to spend it all. That would be a wonderful thing. He earned a lot. He was making good money. The second thing we see in verse 17 is that he's not wasteful. He's concerned about this extra resource, these extra crops that he has. He's not thinking to himself, well, you know what? I can use about two thirds of this, the other third, I don't know. I just don't have room for it. So it'll spoil or whatever. I'm just glad that God has filled up the barns that I've got. No, he is unwilling to be wasteful. He's concerned about using well, every bit of resources that he has. That's a good thing. We see in verse 18 that he planned ahead. He, he was like, what am I going to do? How am I going to handle this big bumper crop here? I'll tell you what, I'm going to tear down my barns and I'm going to build bigger barns, right? That's a, a thoughtful planner and planning is a good thing. This guy, he shows a willingness to do the hard work to make sure that the future is secure. We, we read in verse 18, he was concerned with savings. He wanted to make sure that he was able to set aside all of his crops and live off of them long into the future. And he's concerned about the future, which many people are not. They kind of live in the moment. They do whatever makes them happy here and now, and they don't always consider the ramifications moving forward. In short, this guy seems to be doing everything right financially, right? If he lived in modern times, he would get a write-up in Forbes magazine or Small Businessman Monthly or I don't know, some other business magazine that I don't read. He would get a lot of press and coverage for doing everything right. He seems to have great financial acumen. He's experiencing wonderful financial success. And for most of us, we would hold this guy up as an example or a paragon. We're like, man, everybody should follow his example so they can experience what he does. If this dude came to Connect Church, you know what I would do? I would go to him and I would say, hey, um, I don't know his name, so we're going to give him a name. I'm going to call him Gus. All right, Gus, the farmer. Would you be willing to teach our Financial Peace University small group next semester? Because you seem to get it, dude. Like, you, you know how to make money. You know how to save and plan for the future. Like, you're doing it right. And frankly, a lot of our other people could stand to learn from your wisdom and experience. We look at this guy and what he is accomplishing, what he's experiencing, and we're like, yes, please. I would like a little bit of that for myself. If we were to use some of the language from Matthew 25, the parable of the talents, that we've talked about over the last few weeks, he seems to be very much like one of the good servants, right? He's taken the five bags that God has given him. He has increased it and multiplied it. So now he's got five more. And in the future, he could probably take 10 bags and turn them into 20. He seems to have everything going for him financially. But God doesn't say to him what he said to the good servant in Matthew 25. He doesn't say, Gus, well done, 
good and faithful servant. He doesn't say, Gus, this is some good financial stewardship. You are following what I tell you to do. You're using your money well. I'm so proud of you. Could you teach the rest of my people to do the same? He does not commend him. Where we hold up the rich man as an example, God says the rich farmer is actually a warning. He is a warning, not of what we should be doing, but what we need to be very careful that we don't end up doing. He's a cautionary tale. He's the anti-hero, not the hero of the story. We get to verse 20 and in Jesus parables, there's often this pivot or this twist, this unexpected turn in the story in which the thing that you, it seems to be moving in a certain direction and then it suddenly changes course and you're like, oh, this isn't at all what I expected. As Jesus is telling the story, if you're hearing it for the first time, you probably expect him to say like, now go and do what Gus did. But instead in verse 20, God looks at Gus and every good thing he's accomplished and he says, you fool. Can I tell you, it's possible to be smart and successful from an earthly perspective and to be foolish and a failure from a heavenly perspective. It is possible for everybody in your life to look at you and say, oh, they made it. I'm so impressed. I'm a little jealous. I wish I had what they have. You could be successful by every earthly metric. And the whole time God is like, oh, you fool. You're missing the point altogether. First Corinthians chapter number three, verses 18 to 19. Now, remember, I told you I didn't have time to make slides. So this verse is not on the screen. You're just going to have to listen. First Corinthians three, 18 and 19 says, this. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools instead so that you may be wise for the wisdom of this world is often foolishness in God's sight. We pattern our lives after a certain template. We look at certain metrics of like what makes a successful person. And then we say, that's it. That's my dream. That's my goal. That's what I want to spend my life pursuing. And if we're not careful, we might actually accomplish it. And the whole time God is saying, no, 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 no. I had something much better in store for you. Um, I'm going to say something that I hope is not too terribly offensive to some of you, but it might be. It is what it is. I'm sorry. We have a lot of entrepreneurs in our church and I love you guys. Like I appreciate the hustle so much. My wife is an entrepreneur. She's a small business owner. In a lot of ways you could argue starting a church is an entrepreneurial adventure, right? You're getting something off from ground zero. You're starting with two people. You're growing it to four or 500. So I really appreciate the hard work that you guys put in week after week, but I've noticed something. For many of you, particularly business owners, you have like these um, business leaders, gurus, you know, um, examples that you look to and you'll pay money and go to their seminars and you'll buy their books and you'll listen to their podcasts and they will tell you how to be an incredible salesperson or how to structure your company in the best possible way. They'll give you all the details and listen, you will soak it all up and you will treat it like it's gospel. You'll do every little thing that guy or girl tells you to do. Then when it comes to the actual gospel, you're like, yeah, maybe we'll see. Okay. I'm not trying to be mean, but I'm saying we, we look at these successful people in our world and we say, that's what I want. I'm going to chase after that. And the whole time God is saying, that's so foolish. There are a lot of young people, some old people too, but it's mostly young people. And they see influencers on TikTok and Instagram 
And they say, oh, she's got the life I've always dreamed of. That guy, he has the success that I've always desired. Do you understand? They get to travel for a living. They live in a van. How good is that, right? They have blogs and vlogs and tens of thousands of people that listen to every word they say. They're so successful. And if I could do that, then I know my life would be happy. I know it would be a life well lived. We pattern ourselves after these people and we don't stop to ask whether or not they're good patterns for us to actually follow. Can I tell you that maybe the greatest tragedy in life is not being unsuccessful, but instead being at, being successful at things that don't really matter. The greatest tragedy is not being unsuccessful. It's being successful at things that won't really matter. Do you know that when you get to be 70 or 80 and you're in the nursing home, nobody's going to care how many social media followers you have. <laughs> you're going you're gonna to be an old man with a walker. You're going to be sitting there in the room. You're going to be talking to some nurse and you're going to say, you know, back in the day, back in my day, <laughs> I had 35,000 followers on Instagram. And the nurse is going to be like, what's Instagram? <laughs> you know, it's a like, good story, grandpa. Nobody cares. <laughs> Nobody cares. So much of what we look at and we say, that's the picture that I should spend my life chasing. In the end, it's not going to matter. Nobody else is going to appreciate any of it. We have this tendency to look at successful people from the world's eyes and say, that's what success means. But God has a different perspective of success. So God calls this farmer foolish. Why does he call him foolish? What does he do that makes him a fool? Some of it is obvious, but I want to tease out a couple of these things real quick with the remaining time that we have. First, the farmer was a fool for thinking of himself and no one else. He was a fool for thinking of himself and no one else. Can we put that section of scripture back up on the screen? I want you to notice here that in six verses, the farmer uses the word I or me 11 times in six verses. So basically twice per verse, he is talking about himself. And if you pay really close attention, you see that he is the only thing he talks about. There is no mention of his wife or his kids in this at all. Now, it's possible he doesn't have a wife or kids, and that's why he doesn't mention them, but it's unlikely. In the first century, a man who was old enough and wealthy enough to build his own farm, he would have had a wife and kids. Marriage in those days was as much a financial transaction as it was a romantic um, venture, and so it is very likely that he had a wife and kids, and yet he don't mention them at all doesn't have a word to say about any of them. He also doesn't say a word about his employees. Managing a large farm in the first century would have required him to have servants and field workers, people who would have managed his finances for him, like the servants that we talked about in Matthew 25. And yet he doesn't say anything about any of those people. He's not like, wow, what a blessing. I got this huge windfall during this harvest season. You know what? I'm going to give a bonus to all of my employees because they've been crushing it. They're the reason that I've got this huge bumper crop. Nothing. He doesn't even mention these other people that work with him. There's no talk about his extended family or his friends. He doesn't say, whew, you know, I could take some of these resources and throw a lavish party, welcome in everybody I know. We can have a great time together. None of it. You know who else is missing from his conversation and thought? God. 
There's not a single mention of God at all in his thoughts or in his statements. God doesn't even show up until God says, you fool, all right? Until the pivot, until things go wrong. I think that's very instructive. This farmer believes that he's the center of the universe. Everything exists for him. And everything comes about by him, by his hard work. He's forgotten what we've talked about over the last several weeks, that God is the owner of it all. He's the source of every resource that I have. And so this farmer makes the mistake of treating it as if it's all his, as if it's all the result of his hard work and effort. He's a fool for thinking of himself and no one else. The farmer is also a fool because he presumes the future. He presumes the future. Now, he's not a fool for preparing for the future. Preparing for the future is actually very wise. And the scripture tells us to do that many times over. You should prepare for the future. I think God blesses that, right? We talked a a week or two ago about how like the average Canadian saves 2% of their income. That's not enough. We've got to do better. We've got to prepare for the future. But the problem wasn't that he prepared for the future. The problem was he presumed the future. Think about the things that he says there. Just read it again and notice how he's talking about like the distant future. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this. And he's got decades ahead of him that are all planned out. He presumes that he knows exactly what his life is going to be like now that he has all of these resources. Part of the reason God calls him a fool is because he ain't right about any of it. The book of James warns us of something similar. Chapter four, verses 13 to 16. James says this, look here. You who say today or tomorrow, we're going to a certain town and we're going to stay there a year. We'll do business and make a profit. He says, how do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here for a little while and then it disappears. What you ought to say is if the Lord wants us to, if God wills, then we will live and do this or do that. Otherwise, you're boasting about your own presumptuous plans and all such boasting is evil. The Bible goes to great lengths to remind us that we don't know what the rest of our life is gonna look like. We don't even know what the rest of our day is gonna look like. I've got plans to go home today, to do some laundry, to watch some football, but in reality, I have no clue what's gonna happen to me in the next few hours. I assume like everybody else on the planet that I've got decades left. I turn 43 tomorrow. And yes, thank you. Uh, Thank you. (laughs) The first crowd cheered for that, but okay. So here's the deal. I know I'm kind of at the top of the hill, maybe on the over the hill side. I'm, you know, like when you're on a bike and you're going over the hill and it starts to pick up speed a little bit. I'm at that moment. I've still got time left, right? I've got 30 years easily, maybe as much as 40 or 45. Who knows? I can't say what's going to happen. I can't predict what's going to happen in the next few days or in the next few decades. And so when I presume that I can direct my life, when I presume that I can dictate how long I have and what I can use, then I put myself in a very precarious position. In the last year, I've lost three people in my circle, two from this church unexpectedly, and one in my immediate family. And none of it was I ready for, none of it was I expecting, it just hit. And I'm reminded life is a vapor. It's the morning fog. It's the smoke from the fire. It's the steam on your your mirror in the bathroom. It is there and then it's gone. And so the, 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 the thing, the sin that the farmer committed was the presumption that he had all the time in the world when in fact he had no time left at all. The sad thing is here, 
If the, the farmer knew that this was his last night on earth, his thoughts and his planning probably would have been radically different. I don't imagine if, if he knew this was going to be his last night, he'd be like, I'm going to build some barns and I'm going to store this up and I'm going to live the, the rest of my life in luxury because he had no life left. He would have said, oh gosh, let me make sure that this amount of resources, my crops go to support my family or help those that are in need. His priorities would have shifted. And we see this all the time. We see this in people who receive unfortunate terminal diagnoses, right? Like if the doctor says, hey, it's cancer, it's inoperable, there's nothing we can do. You've got eight months left, you've got two years, everything changes. Suddenly the stuff that you used to think was important doesn't matter anymore. And you start reorienting your life around the things that you know will matter in the long run. We see this with older people. They have a perspective because they know that they're getting closer to whatever the end date is. And so they say to themselves, man, I want to make sure that whatever I do with the remaining time I actually have, it matters. It means something. And so his, his story, the rich farmer, it serves as a warning to us that like, you may not have gotten a terminal diagnosis. You may not be in your eighties, but you don't know how much time you have left. And if you were to find out you had a very limited time, what would you change? Go ahead and change it. Go ahead and live for the things that you know are going to matter in the long term. It would be such a shame to presume the future And then to miss out on the opportunities that God has in front of you. He was also a fool because he ignored eternity. The farmer, he ignored, the the irony here is he's such a good planner. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's really clear that he planned very, very well for his future here on earth. His problem wasn't that he wasn't capable of planning. It's that he was planning for the wrong thing. He ignored eternity. He ignored the afterlife and focused only on this life. Don't make the same mistake. That would be a foolish waste of the life that God has given you. Do you know that when you die and all of us will at some point, you will open your eyes in the next life. You will open your eyes in eternity. You will be staring God face to face. And guess what? You're not going to be able to wing it. You're not going to be able to think on your feet and talk your way through the pearly gates. That's not how it works. Instead, the scriptures are really, really clear. The book of Hebrews tells us this, chapter 9, verses 27 and 28. Just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment. So we are going to pass, and we are going to face judgment. You need to know that. But the judgment is not whether you were a good person, not whether you were generous with your money, not whether you took good care of the poor. It's none of those things. Not whether you went to church. No. Instead, look at what it says. Just as each person is destined to die once and after that comes judgment, so also Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of his people. He will come again, not to deal with our sins, that is not to hold us accountable for our sins, but instead to bring salvation to all who eagerly wait for him. The the scripture says this, there is a final exam to life and the final exam has one question on it. Only one question. And getting this question right dictates what happens to you for the rest of forever. The question is this, during your time here on earth, before you have that final night, like the farmer has and like all of us will have, did you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior? 
Were your sins forgiven by his shed blood on the cross? I'll never know how much it cost to see my sin upon that cross, but I know that whatever happened there in Jesus paid for all of my sins and my mistakes. And when I get to heaven and I stand before God and God says, why should I let you in? I'm not going to say, cause I was a good guy because I was a pastor because I gave money to the bum on the street. No, I'm going to say, because Jesus paid for me to get admitted. His death paid for my sin. That's the only thing that matters. This guy acted like this life was the main life. This life was the one that really mattered. This life is important, yes, but there's all of eternity. Let's say you get 40 or 50 or 60 more years. That's awesome, but it's still nothing in the grand scheme of things. So instead of living only for this life, think about eternal life. Plan for the eternity that God has designed you for, eternal life with him. The final reason that the rich man was a fool was that he, he was focused on getting rich, not being rich. Getting rich, not being rich. Now, you might say that sounds like a difference without a distinction. Like what? I don't get it. If you're getting rich, then you are rich. You are being rich. No, not from a scriptural perspective. See, our world is really consumed with getting rich, but the Bible almost never talks about getting rich. However, several places throughout the New Testament, it talks about being rich. So we see it here in uh, Luke chapter number 12. Christ says, so um, it's foolish then to build up all this wealth. It's foolish to get rich and not be rich towards God. There's another passage, first Timothy chapter number six and in verses 17 to 19, first Timothy six, 17 to 19, listen to what the apostle Paul says, teach those who are rich in this world. Now, remember what I told you a week or two ago. That's you. (laughs) We are all incredibly rich by world standards. All of us are in the top half of income earners. Many of us are in the top 10 or 15%. There are a few of you guys in the room right now, and you are in the top one to 2% of wage earners around the world. So when it says, hey, tell the rich people, he's talking to us. Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud. And not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. I want to pause right there for just a moment. God richly gives us everything we need. Everything we have has been given to us by God, yes, for our enjoyment. See, there are two kind of ditches that we can go into when it comes to a a, a spiritual approach to money, right? You might've heard these terms before. I might be introducing them to you for the first time. One One of the mistakes we can make with money is something called the prosperity gospel, The prosperity gospel says, God just wants you to be rich and happy and wealthy and drive fancy cars and wear Louis Vuitton and like just floss and flex on everybody. That is proof that you are loved by God. That ain't the gospel. In fact, there are many followers of Jesus that will never approach that level of wealth in any way, shape or form. So we, we say, oh no, that's bad. That's contrary. It's not the gospel. And so what can happen is we can veer all the way into the other ditch. And instead of believing the prosperity gospel, we believe the poverty gospel. And we say, oh, money is bad and it's unspiritual. And like 
Christians should never give any thought to money. No, Jesus was very concerned with how his people use their money. It's not about like, oh, you prove your devotion to God by how little you have. You prove how God has changed your life by how much you give. We can't focus on prosperity. We can't focus on poverty. Instead, we focus on providing. We provide for people in need. We provide for the kingdom of God. We do everything we can to use whatever resources we might have, be it large or be it small. We use it for God's purposes. He was a fool because he focused on getting rich, but not being rich. Being rich from a scriptural perspective is saying, you know what? I'm willing to give away whatever God asked me to give away. (laughs) Might be a little bit, might be a lot of bit, but if God says it, I'm going to do it because I trust that he is trustworthy. I was thinking about Fiddy this week. (laughs) Yeah. And I remember growing up, he told me, that I got to get rich or die trying. (laughs) But Jesus' words here in Luke 12, they warn us that if we're not careful, we might actually do both. You might get rich and you might die in the process. Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, what would it profit you to gain the entire world but lose your own soul? What amount of money What amount of fame would you sell your soul for? Jesus is like, don't do it. It's not worth it. God has something better in store for you than that. Don't waste the wealth that God has given you. Now, I want to close by pointing out one little detail from this. You might remember that at the very start, so before Jesus tells the parable, um, he, he, uh, he has an interaction with some people in the crowd, okay? This is one of the things, when you read this, the scriptures in context, okay? You don't read verses, you read chapters. You don't read chapters, you read books. When you read larger chunks of the scripture together, you pick up on details. And one of the things that you'll notice is that Jesus never taught in a vacuum, Okay, so on this day, the day that Luke 12 occurred, the the parable of the rich farmer, Jesus didn't get up that morning and he's like, all right, I got to give a sermon. What should I talk about? He wasn't like me up at 5 a.m. saying, what am I going to say in front of the crowd this morning? Okay, he was already giving a message, but somebody in the back raised their hand and said, hey, Jesus, would you tell my brother to make sure that he goes ahead and divides our father's estate between the two of us? Jesus teaching here, it came about because of the real pain points and pressures that people were experiencing. I want you to understand every teaching that God gives on the subject of finances is to help you. It is to alleviate the problems that you find yourself facing. It is for your good. And to the extent that you trust it, that's the extent that you will experience God's blessing on your financial life. But I also want you to just focus for a moment on that weird interaction and interruption that the guy from the back of the room did. See, when he said, I want you to tell my brother to divide our estate or divide our father's estate, there's kind of this assumption that the father had passed, the oldest brother had received the estate. That's the way things worked in those days. And he was supposed to keep a double portion as the firstborn and then to give a single portion to all of his other siblings. And apparently the older brother was not dividing up the estate. And so the younger brother is saying, this isn't fair. This is not equitable. It's not right. He was my daddy too. Why do you get all his money? I get nothing. 
Huh? You know what the law says. You're supposed to make sure that I get my share. I could imagine, now the uh, older brother didn't say anything here, but I can imagine him, if he had a moment to stand up, he would say, yeah, fool, the reason I haven't given you your share of the wealth is because you're going to waste it. You've always been wasteful. You've always been a prodigal, and I don't want to see dad's fortune go bad. So that's why you're not getting it. So one is framing this as an issue of justice and equality. The other is framing it as an issue of stewardship. And when Jesus says to them, you know what, I'm not going to decide. In fact, both of you need to be on guard against covetousness because your life does not consist of the abundance of your possessions. He's confronting both of them. And he's saying, this isn't even an issue of justice and equity or stewardship. This is a problem with your heart. Both of you guys believe that the amount of money and resources that you have in life defines you. You get the most toys and then die, you win. That is not life. Life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Instead, Jesus says, this is a heart issue. And until you guys deal with the heart, the behavior doesn't matter. Wonder how often we have this same pattern of interaction with God when it comes to our finances. We raise our hand and we say, oh, Jesus, I've got a financial problem. Here's my financial problem. It's a resource issue. I don't have the resources that I need. So could you tell my boss to give me that promotion? Could you just let him know for me? Because if I could get the promo, if I could get the raise, then I could do everything that you're asking me to do. It's a resource issue, or it's a stewardship issue, or it's a communication issue between you and your partner. We frame it all this way. And maybe not every time, but I would venture to guess a lot of times, Jesus listens to us and he says, no, 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 no. This is a heart issue. This is an obedience issue. This is a faith issue. Are you going to trust me? Are you going to do what I call you to do? Are you going to give away more than you're comfortable with? Are you going to trust me to meet your needs? Are you going to do everything I ask? Or are you going to fight and hold on and try to live your life the way that the rich farmer did? That is foolish. That is a waste. That would be a tragedy. And God doesn't want it for any one of us. So my prayer is that you will hear the word of the Lord, that you will be obedient moving forward to whatever he might ask you to give, to whomever he might ask you to give it, and watch as he blesses you richly because you invest in eternal life and God's kingdom, not your own castle. God, would you just bless the reading of your word? Help us to hear what you're saying and then God to put it into practice. I don't want to be like the evil farmer, God. I don't want to hoard resources. Lord, I don't want to take all of your blessings and use them all up on myself. But God, instead, I want to be generous. I want to be a fountain of your blessing in this world. And so I'm praying, God, that you would help me to keep the right perspective, Lord, and to uh, lay up treasures for myself in heaven. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 